Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are in person or with us through the live stream, we offer a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you. We are thrilled that you have chosen to join with us this morning in our celebration of God's grace. And we are very excited about what God is doing in our midst. I need to share with you before I go on with announcements and stuff, if you hear me doing this today, I promise you, I feel fine. My COVID has not come back. No relapses, nothing like that. I hear there are allergies in Georgia. Anybody else besides myself struggling with the ragweed and all of that? And so all the snorting and all of that, I feel as energetic as ever, but I'm doing a lot of <clears throat> So hang with me this morning. And my apologies to the folks on the live stream. I have no idea what to do to make this better for you all, but we're going to do the best we can. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we want to offer a warm welcome to you. We're thrilled you've chosen to worship with us. We hope you grabbed uh, kind of what we'll call our goodie bag, our bag of swag with good stuff and information about the church. And if you would all, and I guess if you're on the end of the row, you get to start it. If everyone would sign the friendship pad, lets us know that you are here and we would love to develop a friendship, develop a relationship with you. Part of our vision is not only loving God, but the love of God propels us outward to love one another and to love our community as well. And speaking of love for the community, I want to invite Norma Graham to share about a couple of very special events going on this fall. Norma? Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, as you know, I have been facilitating Grief Share since 2016. We just finished a seminar. Uh, the last was in March 22nd, I believe it was. And we're gonna be starting up uh, in the fall. We've got two events that we're gonna offer. One of them on November the 11th is going to be Surviving the Holidays. This is gonna be a two hour uh, event and it's going to be from 6.30 to 8.30 on November 11th and that's a Thursday. Uh, it's um, where, as Pastor Birch said, we invite uh, the public to come in for that. We are registered on uh, the website and this year, I think, I think this first is the first time for us, um, our tech staff has provided with the ad in the paper a scan that you can go with your, uh, your little iPhone or your iPad and it'll take you directly to the website to register. Now if you know a loved one or a, a friend who has suffered a lo the loss of their loved one or you yourself have a loss, please come. It will help you to understand what you're going through and help you to gain a foothold into venturing out into the holidays if this is going to be your first time without your loved one. Uh, I can say for me and for other folks that uh, I know that have gone through this that Grief Share has helped them to, with God, to go from mourning to joy. The second, now these are in your, uh, in your bulletin, so you can you can look at them. The second one is going to be December the 9th, and it's going to be loss of spouse. And specific, it'll be specifically for uh, men and women who have uh, either recently lost their spouse or it's been a few years since they've lost their spouse, but they still feel like they, they really need to have a touch and come in and go with the support group. They're loving, we're kind, we um, walk beside each other, in grieving for the loss of our loved ones. I want to also tell you that I'm expecting that in the 1st of January, we'll be starting back our 13-week seminar. And uh, we're excited that we're able to do this. I am grateful to LOPC Church that they are called to host this and they have, a, uh, they have a commitment to this ministry. I'm grateful to God who walks beside us in this and calls facilitators. I crave your prayers 
for the ministry, that we will keep everything biblically and God-centered, that he will send us those who are in need of this ministry, and that anybody in our church who feels the need, feels the calling to come and facilitate and volunteer, please come and talk to me about it. I would, I would really, really love to talk to you about it. If you have any questions about Grief Share, I will be in the lobby for a few minutes after church, and I'll be more than happy to entertain your questions. Thank you very much. Norma, thank you. Uh, please keep these events in prayer. I think it is very, very significant to be able to offer friendship and support, and so we're grateful for that. Uh, you'll also notice that now that we're in October, home fellowship groups have started up. There's a list of them that are uh, going on. You can find them either, you know, bullet, bulletin, e-blasts, website, all those things. We would love for you to be a part of a home fellowship group this year. And this is looking ahead, but we do have a new members inquirers class coming up. It'll be the weekend of November 12th and 13th. It'll be a format of Friday evening from 6 to 9, and then Saturday again from 9 to 3, so two sessions. There, uh, again, are sign-up sheets. You can see the display table in the narthex for registration forms, or feel free just to call Yvonne and call the office, and she'll get you signed up. But if you're interested in the new members class, we wanted to give you a little bit of notice. It's coming up here uh, in November. So those are some of the things going on in the life of the church. God has initiated this time of worship. He has called us to himself. I, to me, that just humbles me and amazes me all the time. It's not about our goodness saying we're going to go to God. It's about the fact that God loves us and he came to us. He has called us into his presence to glorify and magnify his holy name. Let's meditate on the promises of God, the reality of what we are doing, what we are experiencing this morning as the prelude is played.
How incredible. The immortal, the invisible, the only wise God has condescended to come down to us and to invite us to his very throne of grace, to invite us into his throne room to worship him, a taste of heaven itself. Friends, hear the call to worship from Psalm 34. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Father in heaven, all glory be to yours. Yours is the majesty and the wisdom, the power, the strength, the might. We invoke your great name, your great name that we seek to praise, to join with us that we would indeed exalt your name together. There is something oh so special about doing this in community, doing this together as your body of people. So now we invite you to come, to be in the center of our praise and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise. All hail the power of Jesus' name. be seated. This morning for our confession of faith, we will be reciting together in unison the Apostles' Creed, that creed which unites us together in faith and in life and in practice. So friends, what is it that we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us continue to glorify and praise the Lord in singing this song of praise. Let's stand and sing together 10,000 Reasons. be seated. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let us remember who it is that we are approaching. The God who's immortal, invisible, God only wise, the God whose name we praise, I mean, 
10,000 reasons, if we're honest, is not even near enough. And yet he invites us into his presence to unburden our hearts, to be intimate with him, to commune with him. I think of the words, Jesus' own words in John 15, where he talks about abiding in him. I want us to think about that image of abiding, staying, remaining, being centered in his love and his grace and his mercy as we pray this morning. The prayer our Lord taught us to pray, and then I will lead us in the pastoral prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I can't help but be struck, Father, by one of the thoughts that as we pray this prayer each week, do we recognize, do we realize the structure of this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? That before we ever get to our own needs, our need of forgiveness, our need of daily sustenance, our relationships with one another, we are to wrestle with you and for your glory in prayer. We pray to the God who is in heaven for the hallowing and the setting apart of your name for your kingdom to come, for your rule and reign to be felt all over the universe, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us, Father, in everything we do, as we begin the week in your presence, focusing on you and celebrating your resurrection and worshiping you. As we go through the week with our Bible studies and our small groups, as we're in each other's homes, as we're here at the church, as we're meeting as leaders, as we're doing all the things you call us to do, may we wrestle for your glory. May we wrestle for your honor. May your name be hallowed in everything that we do. Father, I pray for the home fellowship groups that will be starting up this month. I pray for the leaders. I pray, Father, for the care and the community. There's an opportunity there in smaller numbers for deeper fellowship and for sharing, as well as time of prayer and time in your word. Father, I pray that you bring us together, that you nurture our relationships. I pray for the facilitators and the leaders, those who will be doing that, that you strengthen them and give them wisdom. I pray for any who aren't a part of it, that they would consider being a part of a home fellowship group. Father, we lift these things up. We pray for the grief share ministry. We pray, Father, for the weekly meetings. We pray, Father, for the special events being held. We pray for Norma and her leadership in facilitating. And we pray for all those who are hurting and need your friendship and need for you to enter in. I think of the promise of the Psalms who says, you count our tears in a bottle. What an incredible image. So, Father, we just pour out our hearts before you. And yes, we wrestle for our own needs. We pray for our daily bread. We pray for those who are suffering and those who are hurting. We ask, Father, that you would bring healing and restoration. And even for those, for us here in this room this morning and watching on the live stream who may be bringing doubts, who may be bringing struggles. The struggles may not all be physical. We may be bringing spiritual struggles before you. Father, meet the needs of our hearts. We pray for renewal. We pray for transformation. We pray for restoration of our lives, that our focus would be upon you. For yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We thank you for this time that we have together, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word, we thank you for your promise. Where you say in the book of Isaiah, for as the rain and the snow fall from heaven and fall to the ground and do not return, but water the earth, producing fruit. So does my word that proceeds from my mouth. It will not return to me void or empty, but will accomplish what I have set out, what I have purposed for it to accomplish. Lord, I thank you for that promise that your word will accomplish your purposes in our life, and that's both individually and corporately as we come before you. So we look to you, we rely upon you. And I rely upon you as much as anybody else as I hear as well as speak your word this morning that you will do in our hearts and our lives what you intend to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to Romans chapter 4 as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We are this morning moving on to chapter 4 and looking at a couple of case studies, if you would. The case studies of Abraham and David, two of the great heroes of the Old Testament. And we're looking at them in Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Well, we all know what it's like to go on a job interview, right? I'm looking at Russell Puppy and I'm going, I don't want to ever go on a job interview ever again. 
<laughs> I, I've done it many times in my church career, and my hope is that this is the last one. So I'm definitely, but we know what it's like, right? When you go there, or maybe to give you a different analogy, you know, they have this thing in sports called free agency. If you play on a team, uh, all the professional sports, once you've been on a, in the league or on a team a certain amount of time, you're basically able then to go, and they call it free agency, go get to check out all the other teams, and I know they're, they're trying to get the most money, but you're able to kind of check out and see what the other team is all about. And it's interesting, whether it's free agency in sports or a job interview, yes, they're asking you all sorts of questions, okay? I remember that, I like that and stuff, but there's a sense where you are also interviewing them. It's kind of a mutual thing back and forth because you want to know what kind of organization, what kind of sports team, what kind of church, what kind of business, whatever it is you are committing yourself to, you would like to know what is the ethos, what are the values, what's the DNA, if you would, of this organization or family. You want to know, will I be a good fit? Will my desires and passions and values, gifts, strengths, weaknesses, yes, I have many, many weaknesses, will all of that fit with wherever it is you're joining? Now, how does this fit in with our study so far in the book of Romans? Well, think about this. Paul has just finished telling the Romans that one is justified, meaning one is in a right relationship with God. You don't have to fear punishment. Your status, your position, you are under the favor of God. God's smile is upon you. You are there simply by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, God declares you, makes a verdict. The verdict is already in that you are in a right status with him completely as a gift, received totally by faith, not by anything that the individual contributes but one of the things we have to remember is there's more to the benefits of salvation. There's more to the scope of what it means to be a Christian. I think one of the dangers, one of the things we need to avoid is the error of reductionism. Reducing the glory and the scope and the hugeness and the bigness, the comprehensiveness, if you will, of redemption, of salvation, of the gospel, of what it means to be a Christian. So one of the other blessings, one of the other realities that come with being a member belonging to Jesus Christ, being justified by faith in Christ, is that you are brought into the family of God, the covenant family of God. For the church of Rome in the first century, that was a church, that was a congregation that was made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers, this was amazingly, incredibly radical because Paul is saying, because Jewish and Gentile folks didn't really get along. A little bit like sports teams that have a rivalry, okay? I pay attention to the Red Sox with what they're doing, the Yankees and the Red Sox. Okay, what Paul is saying here is that Jewish believers and Gentile believers, by the simple act, by the simple badge of faith in Jesus Christ are one family on equal footing. No hierarchy, no superiority. All are equal through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the passage we're looking at this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, is describing the means by which in fulfillment of God's covenant promises, both Jews and Gentiles receive this gift of righteousness. And in doing so, what Paul is doing is he's sharing our family story. He's saying, here are the values. Here are the attributes. I'm God is describing through Paul's letter here the qualities of his covenant family. He's saying, here's the DNA, the ethos, if you would, of the family of God, our family story. And so the text teaches us two things. Through these two case studies of Abraham and David. The first thing we learn is that through Abraham, we learn that God's family is a family of faith. 
Our ethos, our DNA is that of faith, not works. And through David, we learn that God's family is a family of grace. It is a family of God's unmerited, undeserved, and let's be honest, we don't even appreciate it all that well. His favor, his smile is upon us. I remember Jack Miller teaching over and over, and he would say, Church of Christ, God's smile is upon you. When you go out into your week, work, play, retirement, family, grandchildren, meeting, coming together in home fellowship groups, no matter what you're doing, remember and be centered in the fact that God's smile is upon you. Don't work for that, work out of that. So the ethos of our family, our family story, from of old, not a new thing, through Abraham and David is one of faith and one of grace. Let's take a look at each one of these. Look with me at the opening verses. Verses 1 through 5 speak about Abraham. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, so Paul's throwing out a hypothetical. Let's say Abraham was incredible. I mean, never made a mistake. Life was always turned towards God. Never kind of, uh, you know, betrayed his wife or never did any of those things that we know in Abraham's story. did. But let's just say hypothetically, Abraham was justified by works. Well, then what? He has something to boast about. But we know this can't be the case and isn't the case, so not before God. For what does the scripture say? And now what is Paul doing? He's going back. And so much of Romans chapter 4. You want to really know the uh, background, so to speak, of Romans 4? Read Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Because so much of what Paul is doing is he's alluding. Here he's alluding back to Genesis 15, where the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He says, now to the one who, was, who does work, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. In other words, if you work, you're owed wages. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who, and I love this phrase, talk about giving us hope, who justifies the ungodly. In other words, declares right those who are not godly, who don't have it all together, who still struggle, the God who justifies the ungodly, that's the kind of God he is. His faith is counted as righteousness. Well, let's kind of put this in the context. Let's review for a little bit. What is Romans all about? Romans is basically Paul's exposition of the gospel. Why is he doing this? Well, Paul, and I know we like to think of Paul largely as a theologian, and yes, there's deep theology here, but Paul at heart is a missionary. And he is very interested, like Acts 1.8 says, of in the power of the Spirit seeing the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And so what Paul is interested in doing, his home base up to this time has been Antioch. He kind of worked out of the church of Antioch and did his missionary journeys. And he's looking forward to future journeys. In fact, when you get to the end of Romans, it tells us he wants to go all the way westward to Spain, which for Paul at that time would have been what? The ends of the earth. That's where he's wanting to go. So he's interested in basically making Rome, why? It's cosmopolitan, it's the capital of the empire. He wants to visit that. He wants Rome to be, in a sense, his new home base. So he shares with them, this is what I'm all about. In chapter 1, he says he's set apart for the gospel. He views his entire life, his ambitions, his goals, his thought life, his values, everything from the perspective of the gospel. The gospel for Paul shapes everything. There is no aspect of his life where he sits there and says, the gospel doesn't touch upon this, the gospel doesn't determine how I think about this. He said that the gospel was the actual power of God for salvation and that the gospel involves the theme of the letter, the revelation of the righteousness of God. And so he's been describing this revelation of the righteousness of God, 
And he was describing how we all, Jew and Gentile alike, were in the same boat, in need of this gospel, the gospel of the righteousness of God. And how the gospel was God's solution to the problem of universal sin and evil. God's solution to our human problem of turning away from the living God. Who, if you think about it, if he is the creator and sustainer and source of life, if we turn away from him, we find ourselves needing to and seeking life on our own. So after speaking of our universal need, we then learn in Romans chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, about the fact that the status of being right with God, a right status, a right relationship with God is something we receive by faith. Which brings us here to chapter 4, the example, the case study of Abraham, the forefather of Israel. And it asks the question then, how then do we become the children of Abraham? How then do we become the children of Abraham? Is it by faith or is it by works? And so he is setting up an entire polemic, a contrast between faith and works. In other words, Abraham, Paul is teaching us, is an example to us of two things. That one, righteousness is by faith and not by works, and that two, all people, read in that context, Jews and Gentiles, receive this gift of a right relationship with God in the same manner. Thus, there is one family of God, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, brought into God's covenant family in the same way, on equal footing, with the same privileges, the same acceptance, and the same responsibilities. Listen to how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, listen to this, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. When Jesus looks at his church, he sees one church, not 42,000 denominations. When Jesus prays for his church in John chapter 17, he prays that we would all be one. As the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Spirit, the Spirit's in the Father. He looks down and he sees one church. We need to recognize that reconciliation is not peripheral to the gospel, but it is at the heart of the gospel. Reconciliation is not a side issue. We need to take seriously what the Word of God says. He himself is our peace, who has made the two one, who has brought us near. How do you think the Jewish and Gentile believers felt in the congregation there at Rome hearing this? Wait a second, you're telling me I have to go to lunch with that guy? Paul's going, I'm glad I'm writing this from Corinth right now. I'll visit you in the future. You'll have my head on a stake. But he's going, yes, you are one people. Do you know what this means for us? This means that there are people that might be very, very different from us within the church of Jesus Christ that we're called to be not just friends with, but family with. Brothers and sisters. If you belong to Christ together with the badge of faith, the only thing required for membership. This is so simple and yet so challenging at the same time. There's only one badge for membership, and it's not works. And he's saying works kind of synonymously with the Torah, which the Gentiles would not have had. He's saying the badge of membership is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing you need to belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you belong to one another. The core issue in this text is faith versus works. If you're brought into God's covenant family by faith, it excludes works and thus excludes all boasting and promotes humility. Look at verses 2 to 5. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Quoting Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him 
as righteous. Notice verse 2 begins with the word for. Little word, but very significant, meaning it has given us the answer to what is being addressed in verse 1. What Paul is exploring is the means of our being in a right relationship with God. And as important as doctrine is, as important as other things are, the means of being in a right relationship with God is faith and faith alone. Not faith plus all these other things. Faith alone. Verse 2 says Abraham would have a reason and a right to boast if his righteousness before God was based on the quality of his life. But then verse 3, quoting Genesis 15, says, but Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. In other words, Abraham was reckoned by God as righteous by trusting and believing in God's promise, which means all we have to do to be in a right relationship with God is trust the promise of God in Christ. The point of these verses is to bring out the absolute polarity between faith and works, to contrast faith and works, to say to us, you can't have it both ways. You either live by faith or you live by works. Now, I know what we're all saying. You're looking up here and you're going, okay, Jeff, you've said this before. We get this. Salvation's by faith. Live by faith. We get this. Blah, 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 blah. I know. Christianity 101. Do you not think I'm not more mature than this? Well, let me pick on me if not. Okay. You might be more mature. I'm not. I, I need to hear this all the time. Let's apply this in a couple of areas real quick. Now, I want you to check your heart. Examine your heart because I know we all think we live by faith, we live by grace, but are we sure we do not at a functional level operate by works? See, do we understand how prevalent, how inherent self-righteousness is in our nature? I know for me, and I have to be honest and admit this, I think I've shared this with you before, it's all too easy for me to slip into a works righteousness feeling somehow that my value and my worth are based on things like how good a sermon it was that day. Or me, the people pleaser, the approval person that I am, how happy is everyone with me? Am I keeping the peace everywhere? Is everyone happy with me? These aren't things that I necessarily always go about and share and stuff. But we're talking, exam remember Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Don't skip over that part in the Bible, please. Examine your heart. What lies are you telling yourself? What do your emotions reveal about what you are functionally trusting in? Are you a continual conflict avoider? Or how do you feel when somebody criticizes you? Those things will be like diagnostic tools revealing what you are, I'm not talking to your doctor and what you are functionally trusting and believing. Or let me use another example. Let me use the example of our understanding of the truth. Now, don't panic. Of course, I believe truth to be not just important, but essential. Okay? So everybody can relax for a second. I'm not anti-truth. I'm pro-truth. You have to have truth. We need to be people of the truth. But I want us to examine something. Where does our certainty come from? It's one thing to be certain of God's truth and certain in God. We can be absolutely certain in God. But when we are so certain about our understanding, our interpretation of the truth, when we refuse to see nuance, and are absolutely, completely certain that we are right, whatever side of an issue we may be on, however we're trying to apply the truth, we must be careful that we are not trying to reduce the faith into manageable categories instead of li living in the messy realm of grace. See, do you know what the messy realm of grace says? It says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the great love chapter, Paul slips in this little line that he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Now notice the line, for now we see. 
Is there any uncertainty about the truth of God's Word? Absolutely not. God's Word is true. But we see our understanding of that truth, we see at best. There's the mirror, and I'm going, hmm, I need to clean it off a little bit more to see a little bit more clear, because I see in it dimly, which means we ought to have some humility before our interpretation of God's truth. We need to have humility. We need to recognize none of us approach the Scriptures completely objective. We're not objective. We bring our backgrounds. We bring our culture. We bring our baggage. We bring our personal histories. We bring all of that into our interpretations. So our certainty has to be in God, not in our interpretations, which doesn't mean we can't be certain. It just means we need to have humility and do things like have nuance and recognize there is mystery in certain things. See, we need to understand how easy it is for us to slip back into works righteousness, the sense that we are righteous in and of ourselves. And that's why we have to, you know, recognize faith is fundamentally different from works. Works always has to do with our own capabilities, our own competence. Faith is always relying on the capabilities and competence of another, namely Jesus. That is why the most basic discipline of the Christian life, according to Jesus in John 15, is learning to abide in him. Notice what he says in John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can do, what's the next word? Nothing. Huh. Do we take that word literally? I like to think, apart from you, I, I can do, well, maybe some things, anything, one thing. Jesus says clearly nothing, which is why he says, abide in him. And who's he speaking to? His disciples, believers in Christ. He's telling us that the fundamental discipline is faith, abiding in Jesus. Okay, I promise point two will be briefer. That was Abraham. Look with me at David. Verse six, through David, we learn that God's family is a family of grace. Verse 6 says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Faith and works is there listed again. And then again, now we're quoting from Psalm 32, which is very, very important. I'll bring this up in just a second. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, I'll be real brief here because Paul is using the example of David to confirm essentially the same point, faith over against works. But he includes here something that I want to point out. In the words of a commentator on this text by the name of Thomas Schreiner, he says, notice the close relationship between justification and forgiveness supporting both the legal or forensic and the relational meaning of righteousness. See, Paul here puts David, just as he did Abraham, in the category of the ungodly. And particularly in his alluding to Psalm 32, what is being referred to in Psalm 32? Kind of a sordid time in David's life. Not something I think David was oh so proud of his sordid affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Uriah. And one of the things Dr. Schreiner points out is that these were relational sins. They involve people, Bathsheba and Uriah. This is a relational context. We have to become used to in our reading of the Scripture and in our interpretation of the Scripture thinking both and, not either or. It's not forensic, a legal declaration, or relationship. Those two are married together. It is both and. It is legal and relational. David's sins against Bathsheba and Uriah had real consequences. And his sin against God, and when we sin against God, 
It's not just a legal thing. It's a relational thing. We are breaking relationship with God. We don't seek forgiveness. We don't ask for forgiveness as Christians. We've already been declared right. We're not trying to get declared right again. You're already declared right. There is already no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are seeking forgiveness. We are repenting. Repentance needs to be an ongoing part of our Christian lives. Why? To always be restoring relationship with God. Because when you sin, you are violating God's love. We want to think of it simply in legal terms because then maybe it's a little less painful. A little less damaging. You know, what's more damaging? I ran through the stop sign and I broke the law? Or I hurt my wife or husband's heart? If we think of God's word only, only in a legal sense, I'm not saying it doesn't have a legal application, but only in a legal sense. We're in a sense protecting our hearts, thinking to ourselves, well, I only broke the, one of the Ten Commandments. I only broke the law. But if you realize you violated God's love, you hurt his heart, then think about the fact that God who justifies the ungodly. Think about God's love. Think about God's grace. When it says, blessed, is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord will not count. We hurt God's heart, and he continues to move towards us. We violate God's love, and he continues to pursue us. That's why I love the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And when the prodigal goes off, and after he says, I will arise and go back to my father. And he's coming back, and what does he find? He finds his father humiliating himself, already out, hiking up his skirt, running towards the son, looking to him. In other words, the father was looking for the son long before the son ever thought about returning to the father. Do you know your father is pursuing you every moment of every day? That's how much he loves you. The DNA, the ethos, our family story is a story of grace. I want to close with this. One of my favorite images for the church, a way I would encourage us to think about the church is that of a hospital for sinners. We need, who goes into the hospital? Those who are sick and need healing. Look at Abraham and David. God who justifies the ungodly. Abraham and David are put forward as the ungodly. They were sinners who needed healing. They had to go into God's hospital. We are sinners in need of healing. And therefore, if all of us are like that, why do we hide our sin? Why are we ashamed to share our sin with each other? We're in the same hospital together. We're the ungodly that God has justified. What is the DNA of Lake Oconee Church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, your love, your grace. Lord, we do pray that you would continue to impress upon our hearts the glory of your grace, the glory of the gospel. Lord, thank you for all that we can learn. Continue to teach us. Thank you that you pursue us, that you never give up on us. Thank you that we are a hospital for sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction and be dismissed out into the world. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.